I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. I think next week we'll tape the show from Cassie's new Casper mattress. We'll all lay on the bed and do our interview from there and see who falls asleep first. You can go to Casper.com and get your own mattress. Use the code radio and save $50 off the purchase of a new mattress. You can also get a pillow, some sheets. Who knows what else they might have there for you. Go to Casper.com, type in radio as a promo code, and you save 50 bucks. Terms and conditions apply. I've had 20 of those in my life where people just said, you're never going to get it, and we get it. For me, that's sort of like waving the red flag in front of the bull. No problem. Bring it. What's up, y'all? Welcome to Rebel Radio. That was Cassie with her favorite quote from today's guest, Phil Q, my man, Phil Quartarero. I know you also heard about our sponsor, Casper Mattresses. Go buy a Casper, casper.com. Use the code Rebel Radio, save 50 bucks. Phil Q was president of Virgin Records, Warner Brothers Records, EMI Music. This dude is a music business legend. He's worked with everybody from U2 to the Spice Girls, Janet Jackson, huge, huge mega hits. And he's going to break down everything that's wrong with the music business and how it got to this point, some great lessons about uh, running independent companies, major corporations, and some of the differences there for those of you corporate folks that want to learn how to navigate those waters. He's got some wisdom for you. Phil is also now running a new music streaming service called Gavera. Check out Gavera.com and send us a comment. Let us know what you think about that. You can find us on Twitter at Rebel Radio Net. And as always, subscribe to Rebel Radio on iTunes or SoundCloud. And before we get into the interview, we're going to hear our EDM.com track of the week. Here it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Kind of bad bitch, you sinister. I feel a hug. Yeah. Then 
tell her pick it up, pick it up. Yeah. Bad bitch, you might need your ass whipped. She rolling on E, so the gas lit. I come up behind her like an lit Blow a few deceased guys. Fresh money with no crease lines. Playing with a pussy, making peace signs. Hit her with the paper one more time, like it's refis. Bands in my Levi's, grams in my switcher, yeah. Coding in my veins from the double cup. I just doubled up. Now All right, that was our EDM.com track of the week called Brick of Ones from the artist Job Jetson. If you like that, go to SoundCloud.com slash hip hop for the hip hop channel and you'll find much more like it. And now my interview with Phil Q. Well, Phil Q, thanks for coming, man. It's it's awesome to have you here. Um, I don't want to kiss your ass too much, but uh, you are a bona fide legend in That's the music scary. business. Yeah, uh, It's nice to have somebody older than me here because usually I got these young kids in the hot seat <laughs> and I just feel old. So now I feel like I'm, I'm with my people. With your peeps? Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, but it's great to finally meet you. You know, I've I've been seeing you from afar for years, and um, you were kind of at the top of the music business when I was getting started. And so you're just one of those names that I've seen around. And uh, <clears throat> the more I've learned about you, just you know, preparing for this, uh, you've, you've had a really interesting career. I've been very fortunate because I had very good teachers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you were growing up in the in the business in those years, you you basically either went to the there were two big schools that you could go to. There mm-hmm. was the Columbia Big Red Machine School, right? You know, uh, or there was the Warner Brothers mm-hmm. School, and everything else kind of fell in the middle. The MCAs and Polygram, yeah, uh, EMI, but but those the two big schools were the the Sledgehammer. Uh, steamroller red uh-huh. machine yeah. method or the uh, huggy feely artists come first Warner Brothers interesting yeah and and I always gravitated to the Warner Brothers side of things because I was always an artist centric guy mm-hmm. but I was very fortunate because the school of schools I went to was the school of Jerry Moss which was A&M mm-hmm. followed by the school of Chris Blackwell which was Island. Yeah. Followed by the school of Clive Davis at Arista. Yeah. And then very influential for a lot of years in the school of Richard Branson. So I took a different path than a lot of my peers and had a different um, different pedigree as a result of that. Yeah. Well, I want to hear all about that, and, and I've got some uh, – I want to dig into some of that stuff a little bit. But if you would, take us back – to before that, to how how you got started in the music business, and I'm always curious what what makes somebody want to get into music as a career. Okay. Um, my dad was the first full time endodontist in New York, first guy doing root canals full time in New York. Oh wow! When after the war, and as a result of that, he had a kind of interesting clientele coming through his chair. And over the years, he had Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald and, um, you know, Jimmy Dorsey. And, you know, so the – my dad was a guy who who would act like we acted as teenagers. He'd get up in the morning and 
before we even had breakfast on the table, you know, there'd be this guy in the living room blasting uh-huh. big band <laughs> jazz. You know, my nice. father was a nut for big band and Dixieland jazz. Yeah. So we grew up in the house. I grew up in, I was the oldest of four boys, and we grew up in the house with music all the time. And uh, when I was, uh, when I was, 15 years old, I convinced the guy next door who was old enough to drive to, uh, I gave him $5 to fill up his gas tank. Nice. And we drove into uh, Brooklyn and Queens in the Bronx. We drove all over on a Friday and a Saturday. And we went into every place that we saw, you know, like a restaurant or a or a, a club. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, I was too young to get in, but right. somehow I... Managed my way in there. It was and, a lot more lax back then, I remember. And uh, I could, and I handed out this card with my father's phone number on it. I told him I could get them bands. What? And then, kidding. And then the following weekend, for another $5 full tank of gas, we drove around the same route, except I went anywhere there was a band playing and told him I could get them jobs. Oh, wow. Now, I couldn't do either one because I was yeah. a 15-year-old kid yeah. in ninth grade. I was out of my mind, you know? mm-hmm. yeah. but then the phone started ringing off the hook at my father's house, and I started cutting deals and taking fifteen percent off the top, and that went on for about three days. So like you're that. a booking agent in, in uh, high school, just a bookie, yeah, just a bookie. <laughs> and Wait, then where, where was the permission to do this? Was it just uh, you? Like that is creative? where the fault. Ca- that's where the problem came. There was no permission, <laughs> and uh, so my dad ultimately said, "Well, either you're moving out or the phone's moving out. Yeah. So decide." Yeah. At 14, I was 15, I wasn't going anywhere. So the phone number got changed, and my first job ended. Yeah. yeah. So did you actually book acts? Sure. Oh, my gosh, that's amazing. That's fantastic. That's, what, what was that's it? like the best do, story do you remember, I've ever heard. Do you remember an act that you booked? Um, No. No. No, none of them. Yeah, because they're All of like... them and none of them. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. I get it. Um, oh, my gosh, so funny. It was pretty funny. So, uh... Where did those kind of balls come from? I I don't I can't even tell you. You know I don't know I, I don't know if I was just delusional or yeah. mm-hmm. you know you know like a lot of people my age if you were if you were aware in 1964 you know that the the one demarcation that we all identify with was that Sunday night on the Ed Sullivan show when the Beatles came off the mm-hmm. plane you know if you're old enough to remember that yeah then you know and and we were in the family room on a Sunday night, my brothers and my parents, and, you know, I can I can remember that moment being a cataclysmic change for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just, I looked at that on TV and I said, I don't have the slightest idea what that is, mm-hmm. but I'm going to be part of it. Right. And nice. I, I made a, I mean, at, at six years old. Yeah. I just decided, that's what I'm doing. Right. That's fantastic. So did your dad's career have anything to do with this idea that you can, like... No. No. Just because he, he knew these artists? You didn't like... No, well, he knew them as patients, you know. He wasn't right, hanging right. out with them, but... Yeah. I know, but it's just so interesting that he's, like, talking to those kind of patients, and you have yeah. this, like, desire to... Well, he was being a doctor, you know, so yeah. he didn't... It didn't really... Other than being a fan and a doctor, it didn't phase him either way. Mm-hmm. But it was it was really um, motivating for me, you know. And um, anyway, so as a kid, you know, I'd, I got involved with local bands and did you know, what I called was a manager, as much as you can be a manager when you're, you know, 16 years old. Right. And, you know, yeah. lugging equipment around and... Sure. You well, know, and then, and so what kind of music were you into at the time? Oh, in those days, it was all rock bands. Yeah. Yeah. 
So who was like? What Did were you grow up in Long Island, in New York? No, I grew up in San Francisco. Oh, okay. Yeah. But in New York, there were bands like there were bands like the Vanilla Fudge and the Alessi Brothers that were mm-hmm. like from Long Island that hadn't broken yet, yeah. and they were, you know. So we were around those guys. They were the Rascals. I mean, obviously they were much older than I was. Sure. You know, I was a little yeah. kid. Yeah. But you know, we somehow elbowed our way into the table. You know, and um, and then uh, I went to school. It was then things after I left high school, things kind of happened pretty quickly because um, I went to college, and the, and I went to school in Syracuse. And the reason I went to school in Syracuse is because I spent all of my uh, high school senior year trying to figure out who had a music business program, and it didn't exist. Mm. And mm. the nearest thing I found was that Syracuse University had a journalism school, and I figured if I went to a journalism school and I hooked it up with a business degree, that somehow that was going to get me. You know, I mean, yeah. Yeah. In the mind of a 17-year-old kid, That's you know. better than probably a lot of these music business try. programs. <laughs> yeah. So I go to so I go to Syracuse. Yeah. And uh you know, my parents drop me off at the dormitory and they pull off the curb and I turn to the kid standing next to me whose parents just dropped him off at the dormitory and his parents pulled away and we looked at each other. And I said, "Hello, I'm Phil Quateraro." And he said, "Hello, I'm Rob Light." Yeah. Crazy. Crazy. And it was like you know, and we were buddies. Yeah. We lived in the same floor of the dorm. So Rob Light went on to be head of music at CAA. Right? He went. He's the biggest agent in the world. Yeah, wow. and we've been best friends for forty years. Yeah, and and uh, he, uh, you know, in very early at school, he was booking the shows, and I got into a college rep program. They had these college mm-hmm. rep at the record companies at that time had college programs. Yeah, where they would have students come on board and be. Um, promotion guys, promotion people for college radio stations. Mm-hmm. And we each had a territory. My yeah. territory went from Albany <clears throat> to um, Cleveland working for A&M Records. Herb Alpert and Jerry Mossley. Well, that was the first job I ever had as a college rep. You know? Nice. It was great. And uh, I didn't get that till my second year. Halfway through my first year after I met Rob, I was at the radio station trying to convince him that I knew what I was doing on a radio station, which I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> sure. But it was, you know. I was as good as anybody was going to be. It's college radio. It's college radio. And I got I ended up in a uh, in a meeting, and everybody left the room. I was sitting in a room by myself, and I turned to the guy next to me, and I said, I'm Phil Quartararo, and he said, I'm John Sykes. And then, so John and then we be became buddies. One of the founders of MTV. Right? John is one of the founders of MTV. Yeah. John is was the president of CBS Radio. Wow. John is now the president of iHeartRadio. Yeah, and um, was the founder of uh, Behind the Music for mm-hmm. VH1, and you know John's had a huge career. Right. So, yeah. so John and Rob and I, as a result of that uh, three or four years in Syracuse, where we overlapped, you know, we we were best friends. We did everything together. Um, I was the record guy, and John was the record guy, and Rob was the booking guy, and mm-hmm. you know, we just we all came out of school and went on to our. Yeah. lives you know and we've we've stayed connected ever since but that it was just <coughs> complete serendipity how that unfolded you know mm-hmm. so how important is that i mean you know <coughs> sounds pretty amazing that you know the three of you kind of had each other yeah, right mm-hmm. um and i always think you know i think back to my own career and other people i've seen that you know having that group of people that you start out with you're not necessarily working together in the sense of you're not partners in a company Right, but you're all there for each other, and you're kind of helping out, you know. It is important who you uh, associate yourself with. You know, you can't you can't 
predict who's it would be kind of crass to associate yourself only with successful people Mm -hmm. of course you know yeah but we were friends first and foremost we all stayed friends we we were always friends above everything else Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we happen all end up doing the same thing the punchline to that of course is that syracuse really was not a music industry school Right. right Yeah. yeah, that's crazy. So we, so, you know, it was they had a television radio program, they had a journalism program, they had, a, they never had a music industry program. The three of us went on to do this thing, you know, yeah. so, which was kind of nuts. Yeah, right. Now, the nice thing for the three of us is that we then went on to create one of the first um, music industry curriculums mm. in America. Nice. So, um, John and Rob and I. So we've always been on the, when we left school, we stayed on the board, right? We've always stayed on the Newhouse board. And then we created a curriculum that was named for the guy who funded it, the Martin Bandier program. Okay. So nice. that's what it is now. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's amazing. Do you remember, <coughs> do you remember any uh, records you worked at as an A&M? <coughs> In those years? College rep? <clears throat> is there one that stood out? Yeah, there were a couple of them, but none of which are going to sound too sexy, but... There were, in those days, there were records by the Carpenters, uh-huh. the Captain and Tennille, yeah. Sticks, uh, Head East. Mm-hmm. Those, that was the repertoire in those days. Carol King. Yeah. We worked Tapestry. Nice. Which went on to be, you know, the second biggest record of all time behind Thriller. Yeah. Stayed in bed all morning just to pass the time. There's something wrong here, there can be no denying. Is changing, or maybe we just stop trying. And it's too late, baby. Now it's too late. Though we really did try to make it, something inside has died, and I can't hide, and I just can't fake it. Oh. But the thing that was good about AM was that right after we got there, there was a guy in uh, Hartford who was the college rep in our territories, kind of abutted each other at Albany, you know? Mm-hmm. His name was Michael Plenn. You know Michael Plenn mm-hmm. at all? Michael Plenn's a great promotion man. And he he ended up being my head of promotion. Well, he was, he was actually very involved with the IRS, with Miles Copeland, for years. Mm-hmm. And then he ended up being my head of promotion at um, Virgin for many years and we worked at A&M together for many years but uh, in those days uh, right about the time that you know all the Captain Tennille and the Carpenters and all that stuff that's when Jerry Moss started going off into a different direction that's when he signed The Police and Joe Jackson and Squeeze and yeah really great stuff sure and then you went on so (coughs) if I remember correctly uh, you went on to Island Mm-hmm. And then uh, Virgin. <coughs> Island was after A&M. Okay. And that was for about three years. Mm-hmm. And then um, Arista for about okay. a year. And then Virgin. Okay. Nice. And then ultimately Warner's and then, and then yeah. EMI. Right. Um, so multiple people have called you a marketing genius. Why? Why, <laughs> why would they say such a thing? Clearly, they're confused. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, talk about what that means in, in the record business. Mm-hmm. What? I mean, I know you're involved with, with Breaking U2. I know that, you so know. Island, we got the credit for Breaking U2. 
which is great. Absolutely. I don't know if that makes us a marketing genius. I mean, I, was, I had the tenacity yeah. as a promotion man. You know, the thing that broke you two, just to go off track for one second. Okay. The thing that broke you two was a big rock band. When I got there to Ireland in 1982, U two was already starting to play big rooms, and they already had. Is that boy mm, where they yeah, at at that point? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so this is not, sure. you know, I'm not Christopher Columbus. I mean, yeah. this is a this is a big band already. You yeah. know, I can't take credit for that. Right. What I get credit for, what my team got credit for, was that we took you two from being a rock band to being a pop band. Yeah. Mm. And the song that did that was on Unforgivable Fire called Pride. Mm-hmm. One man come and go One man come here to justify One man to That story is interesting because um, that would have been, uh, I guess, 1983 or 84, but maybe 83. But, you know, that record, we, we worked that record for almost a year, like literally 50 or 51 weeks, and the record was in the top five. And uh, the, only, the only markets I was missing was New York and L.A., and at the time, the program director at KISS in L.A. was Jerry DeFrancisco. And the program director in New York at Z100 was Scott Shannon and Larry Berger at PLJ. Mm-hmm. And they were both like, nope, we're not playing that. We're not playing that uh, avant-garde hippie rock music here. Wow. You know? And I was like, well, actually, you are going to play it. It's just a matter of when you're going to play it. Yeah. And um, so DeFran... I got DeFrancisco to tell me that if I ever got Shannon on the record, he would add it. So I knew I had to get Shannon on the record mm-hmm. at, at Z100 in New York. So um, they had sold out four nights at the Meadowlands. And Paul McGinnis told me, we're going to put, the manager of the band said, we're going to put um, two more nights up for sale on the Meadowlands. I'm just letting you know. And I said, can you estimate for me how fast you think you'll sell those out? He says, oh, I think we'll sell it out in, in hours. I said, for real? He says, yeah, mm-hmm. we'll sell it out in hours. I said, all right, I'm going to go close the record. And I called Shannon the week before they put him on sale. And I said, let me tell you something. And I'd been working the record for a year at radio with my guys. And I said to Scott, um, they're going to put two more shows on at the Meadowlands. And I said, if it shows, if the shows sell out in one day, let's make a deal. If they sell out in one day, you add the record. If the shows, both shows, don't sell out in one day, I'm never going to bring the record up to you again. Never. He said, you got a deal. Because those shows are not selling out. Those yeah. are not my listeners. Yeah. And you got a deal. I said, okay. Man, the Rebel Radio crew... We took a field trip down to the Casper mattress store. I think it was a pop-up in Venice. I don't even think it's there anymore, but we got to test out the Casper mattresses and mess around in the store. We played checkers. James had a pillow fight with the shop girl, and I got to sleep on the mattress. While I laid down, I would have fallen asleep. No, no bullshit. That thing was so comfortable. Cassie was throwing stuff at me. Otherwise, I probably would have fallen asleep right in the store. But you could get your own Casper mattress instead of listening to my stupid stories about it. Go to Casper.com, 
Use our special promo code RADIO and you get $50 off the purchase of a mattress. You can get some pillows and sheets. You probably need new pillows because your pillows at home are, I guarantee you, they're disgusting. You've been drooling on them. They're filthy. Get, get you some new pillows. That's my advice to you for 2016. Go to Casper.com. Use the code RADIO. Save 50 bucks. Terms and conditions apply. Tickets go on sale, and they sell out in about 18 minutes, both shows, wow. right? Yeah. And I, and that's when you had to line up to go buy tickets. Right. There's no, right. they there's were, no back button. Well, the, what, the there was then, what there minutes. was then was Ticketron, if okay. you remember. Remember Ticketron? Yeah, for sure. It, it was not, yeah. That was not online, but you could go to a store. Right. You, you go could to go store. to a Ticketron outlet, yeah. and it was, okay. you know. Yeah. I used to go to Rainbow Records in San Francisco. Yeah, so you know. Get my Ticketron. Right. There you go. So the show sells out. McGinnis calls me from... Dublin or wherever he goes, shows are sold out. Thank you very much. I call up Shannon. I said, hey, Scott, it's Phil. He says, turn on your radio. Click. Right? And it was on the radio. Wow. And then like two minutes later, I called DeFrancisco, and he says, I know. I got it. <laughs> Click. And that's how we closed New York and L.A. Yeah. yeah. And that's how we closed the record. Ultimate. And that's how we broke you two. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So is that is that your approach to everything, just... No, I'm not as cheeky now as I was then. <laughs> but so, it was, but I mean, I was determined to get it. Right. So, yeah. you know, I think you said to me, "What does that kind of, what does that kind of label mean that mm-hmm. they call you a marketing genius yeah, in the record yeah. business?" I don't know. You know, to me, it's kind of silly. But honestly, I think what that means in the record business is that you get the tough records. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You get the records that people think you're never going to get. So there were nobody thought we were going to get you two to pop. Never mind to number one. Never. Yeah. Because they were a rock band. They were all the way over here. And, you know, it just wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had, you know, 20 of those in my life. Right. Where people just said, you're never going to get it. And we get it. And, and for me, that's sort of like waving the red yeah, flag sure. in front of the bull. Right. So it's like, no problem. Yeah. Bring it, you know. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And, and what answers do you have that they don't have? You know, um, like what, why I don't, don't they know that I just, you know? I don't know that they don't know. I don't know that there's something they don't know that I know. I just think that I look at I look at some I look at something differently. You know, I, and people see this, and I look mm-hmm. at it like ten different ways, and I just find the I find the window in. You know, just to get it done because right. I'm just hired to do a job. My job is to make sure that we break the record. So right. I'm going to break the record. That's just what I do. You know, so I didn't. I never thought I was smart about it. I just thought that I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. Right, and, and you didn't call it marketing. You're just. <laughs> We didn't, no, we didn't even, we were making it up. I never went to school to run a record company. You know, right. there were no schools for that. Yeah. As we just talked about. But, you know, the, you know when you, there were all these, um, we, at A&M we had a slew of instrumental records. Mm-hmm. Well, even, even at A&M we had, you know, Herb Al, I mm-hmm. mean, um, Chuck Mangione, Feel yeah. So Good. That was up, when that record went to number one, that was the biggest instrumental that had ever been the number one. Yeah. And, and they said, you guys just got lucky. Mm-hmm. Okay. A year later, Herb Alpert gives us a song called Rise. Yeah. They And we said, we're going to chuck Mangio on this record. And they said, never going to happen. You guys just got lucky.
they get the number one. Yeah. You know? So, and then we had... So, um, who, who's they? Well, the, they is the community. Okay. You know, the other yeah. promotion guys, the other yeah. record companies, the radio stations. And, and, and does it ever occur to you to listen to them? Ever? Yeah, because that gets me fired up. Okay. I love that part. That's okay. like loading the gun. Yeah. That's so like, you're like, all right, I'll call yeah. you back tomorrow. That's like putting <laughs> the lead in my pencil. Like, yeah, 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 bring sure. it. Let's so go. Is that is that is that passion or is it work ethics? Like, where did you, where does that drive come from? You know, I just love music and I love what I do. To yeah. me, it's kind of sport. I don't, I don't. If if it ever was work, I would probably wouldn't do it. Mm. Yeah, you If I ever thought as, it was like, painful or difficult, then I I just probably wouldn't do it. But it's just you. I guess so. I yeah. mean, it's. I don't, it's very nice what you're saying, but I don't look at it that way. I mean, it's, I appreciate it. No, I mean, it's just, you know, like you're, you're not driven by like the constant nose. You're like, I'm driven by the competition. Yeah. You know, I'm a competitive guy. So I'm driven by the competition of getting my record over the finish line. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and sometimes you can, um, negotiate that. Mm -hmm. and Sometimes you can't. Sometimes competitive people like, you know. You don't remember all the, the wins, but you remember the losses. Oh, listen, I can tell you, there's a song called Tempted by Squeeze. Yeah, which, love that record. Yeah, which we all grew up with. We loved it. I worked yeah. that record. I bought a toothbrush, some toothpaste, a flannel for my face, pajamas, a hairbrush, new shoes, and a case. I said to my reflection, All the way in, you know, and to this day, that record comes on the radio, and we all call each other, <laughs> you know, like playing, and we all call each other, that son of a bitch, you know, and and, yeah. and it was a guy, and there's a very famous uh, radio guy named Jeff Pollock, huh? You know Jeff? Yeah. Or oh, you know of Jeff? Sure, sure. So, um, Jeff, at the time that we were working that record, I was a promotion man in New York for A and M Records. This was 1979. <laughs> and uh, I know, I know you were. That's what that <laughs> she is. She wasn't listening to, to radio. Years later. Let's, let's yeah, thank that. you very much. <laughs> so um, Jeff was the program director at WYSP in Philadelphia. Okay, and he just didn't want to know about that record. He just didn't want to know. And I had him surrounded. Everybody playing it to death, and it was huge. It was getting sales and calls mm -hmm. and requests. And it was just, yeah, just didn't want to know. So, you know, and he never played it. Now, today, it's one of the biggest mm -hmm. recurrent songs of all time, you know. But that record was never, in, a, in its day, in 1970, 1980, was never a gigantic right. steamroller, mm -hmm. drop-dead mm -hmm. sure. hit record. Yeah. Wow. Which is kind of fun, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. So, you know, especially in music or, or in creative uh, industries... But I think also, you know, when we think about the tech business, which I know you're in now with Gavera. So, you know, the lines, I think, between product and marketing sometimes get a little blurry. So when a record is a hit, history tells us that it was a great record. Correct. When a record was not a hit, history tells us maybe it wasn't that good of a record. Right. And right. Uh, 
And yet, and so the, you know, the role of marketing is maybe hard to understand in that picture, right? And I think it's the same with, with technology that we see these apps and these services come and go and we assume, you know, your, our, our gut is that the biggest one is the best one. Right. Uh, how, how do you see those two things playing together? Like, can you, can you break a shitty record? Let's assume maybe not. Well, it's much harder. There are certainly, let's say this, there are certainly shitty records that become hits. Mm -hmm. We all know that. Because there are records on the radio that have no business being listened to. That is yeah. horrible. They're horrible. Yeah. Okay. And, and well, but the flip side of that statement is that there are songs that are absolutely fabulous that never get up to bat for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. So the truth is, my view is, the song, it begins with the song. If you have a real song that's a real hit, you know it right away, and it's our job to prove it. It's our job to get it exposed enough so that if it's on the radio, it gets call-out research. Mm -hmm. If it's in a store, it sells more than the one next to it. If it's on the radio, it gets played more, whatever the barometer is. Our job is to separate it from the pack, make sure it gets the attention, and it gets the chance to be a hit. That's what our, the job of a music company is. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, you know, there was a day where the our industry manipulated a lot of the industry to create hits, and most of the time, the hits are the ones that got through and mm -hmm. stuck. But um, in today's world, you know, the, the technology, to your point, is the great equalizer. It democratizes what... That you know, any it used to be that there was a system. If you had a song and you wanted to bring it to the world, you had to go to a record company. You had to get right. signed. And yeah. You had to go through that funnel, and hopefully you got up to bat. Hopefully you got the budget. Hopefully you got prioritized. And at the end of the day, hopefully you had a hit. And if you could string three or four of those together, maybe you'd get, have a career. Mm -hmm. Well, today, anybody can put a song online. Anybody, a guy in a garage, my twelve-year-old son. Yeah. So there's no filter there. So the job remains the same. How do you break a song out of the pack of the millions of songs? There's a, I heard an estimate recently, which I think I said to you when we saw each other. I, I hear uh, I hear that there are a million songs a day Jeez. put up on the internet. That's not an unbelievable number. If you think about around the world, that's not well. That's, that's not out of the question. It's not. Although I remember. I think it was around 2000 when the industry was sort of at its peak and maybe starting, right? And uh, that I read something, it was Billboard or whatever, that 28,000 records had come out that year mm. through major and, the, and the, right. you know, like through, actual through releases. releases. Yeah. yeah. So to go from 28,000 a year to a million a day is a big leap <laughs> in, in 15 years. But in 2000, those 28,000 were only put out by record companies or right. by somebody who was making an official release. Yeah. Like I said, you Absolutely. Know, I, got, I got five sons. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, somebody's putting a record up right now. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. You know, so, so that's the difference because, you know, in 19, uh, well, I won't even waste your time with this, but everybody becomes, everybody is now a composer. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah. Simple as that. Yeah. Absolutely. And and everyone to some extent becomes a critic, right? Because you know if you're if you're my age, you know you 
relied heavily on the the curators, mm-hmm. whether it was MTV, you know, for me it was KMEL or Source, K-Fog right, or, or the radio programmers, yeah, or, Bill Graham, or, or, the, or the you know Rolling Stone, or West. whatever those guys who decided out of those you know several thousand choices, we're going to narrow it down to these things to focus on, and and we don't have that, and we argue sometimes about like you know the the difference between that system versus what's trending on Mom. YouTube or mm-hmm. on Hype Machine or you know on SoundCloud, right where all this stuff just comes in and certain things filter their way to the top. I think it's it's tempting and the technology guys would tell you that they've built a system where the best quality just sort of rises. Yeah, I like I think, that face. I think they're delusional. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think they don't know what they don't know. Right. In a sentence. Yeah. It, you know, it's a bunch of guys but they can't wear their glasses straight banging into each other in the hallway. I, th- I think they don't know a single thing about what we do. Right. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, I I, l- let me tell you about a marketing meeting I once had at Virgin Records. Okay. Yeah. I walked into a room. I got into a room late, and it was probably uh, I can't even guess. Maybe ninety six or ninety seven, nineteen ninety six, nineteen ninety seven. But there were enough devices around at that point. It, you know, the internet. Yeah. That everyone had it, a BlackBerry. Or it a, was starting. Yeah. You know, but it hadn't really. There was no Two-way infrastructure pager. yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. But it was. It was definitely. Mm-hmm. And all, I walk into a meeting, and there's forty guys, forty people in the room having a marketing meeting, and what they're arguing about is the devices. Well, this one is faster, and this one is better. This one sounds, and I'm like, so I sat down. I'm listening to them, and I'm thinking, what the hell are they talking about? And I'm listening, you know. And I'm, so I let them go for like 15 more minutes, and yeah. I said, guys, <clears throat> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What you're talking about is inconsequential. Okay, leave this to Bill Gates. Leave this to Steve Jobs. Whoever the guys were at the time, I said, that's not our business. We have two things that we do in our world. Only two things. We we find and identify talent, and we exploit it and bring it to the fans. Mm-hmm. That's all we do. This is about distribution. That's all mm-hmm. this is. Mm-hmm. Did we did we change our model when, when, the, when the consumer wanted to go from an album to a cassette mm-hmm. or from a cassette to a CD? We didn't, we didn't go out of business. Mm-hmm. Okay? So the, the, that's, we're not in the business of devices. That's that's for the device business companies. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in the business of talent. Yeah, and and that's where the record company, that's where the music industry lost its way. Yeah, because mm-hmm. they decided they were in a different business <clears throat> than they were really in, and all of a sudden, they lost their seat at the table. Mm-hmm. Well, so you you said publicly, the record business didn't get killed; it committed suicide, right? That's right. By not listening to that. its its customers, and that's a hard thing for me to say because my peers mm-hmm, have given me some heat on that, mm-hmm. you know, and because and the people who I love yeah. the most have given me the most heat, but it's what I believe. So, talk about that a little bit. How how what, when you say that that they needed to listen to their customers and they didn't, mm-hmm. what does that mean? The music industry is filled with you know it's filled with people who understand that. We deal with artists who create art. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But the business of the business is about transactions. It's about sales. And how does my record sell more than your record and your record sell more than his record and his record sell it? That's, that's the nature of the business, right? Mm-hmm. That's about driving. That's a hit business, same as TV or same as film or any entertainment genre. So at the end of the day, 
What's the number one rule in, in retail? You listen to your customer. Number one rule. What's the number one thing the music industry did not do? They did not listen to their customer. We forced customers to buy 10 tracks on an album and they wanted one track. Mm-hmm. We forced them to pay too much to receive too little. We forced them to uh, be inconvenienced when they wanted to consume music. There was only one way to get it. You had to drive to the store and you had to, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we were... And when the technology came, we fell further behind even faster because for a bunch of guys who claimed to be so progressive, the one thing we were not being at all was progressive because we didn't want to hear about mm-hmm. a different way or another way to talk to our consumers. It just mm-hmm. wasn't, in the, wasn't in the playbook. So all these other um, shoulder and ancillary businesses were coming up around us. Mm-hmm. And... Um, we refuse to uh, listen to you know you know we're the guys the RIAA sued the fans. I mean, how do you sue fans? How yeah, do you right. sue your buyers? Yeah, yeah. like wh- that's crazy. What business is that? So yeah, it's um, basically giving up, right? So look, I'm I'm outspoken on it because um, I I think that if I think that if the people who I love the most in this business thought about it. They probably would have a hard time disagreeing with the mistakes that got made, especially in the '90s. And I'm not, I'm not critical about it. Like, you know, I mean, I was there. I was mm-hmm. part of it. I'm not saying the other guys or, mm-hmm. or this guy or that guy. I'm yeah. just saying that as an industry, we missed the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the point was to create the shortest line between the artists and the fans. That mm-hmm. was our job. Right. And we didn't do it. Yeah. And that's where technology got to step in. Right. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, that's that's a, a great point. And the um, the reality at the same time is that the business has become exponentially harder. Oh, yeah. Not to say that your job was easy, right? But it's become much more complex, yes. right? Like you said, there, there used to be a system. Mm-hmm. And you either worked that system well or not. And you either had the resources or you didn't, yeah. right? But now... There isn't that kind of system that's no such system, a direct right. line to success. Mm-hmm. Right. And, I, and I think in a lot of industries, that just throws people into chaos. I think, you know. Well, in this industry, that's exactly what it's done. Yeah. Um, my, the favorite quote I've heard about the music industry, do you need, we can take a break. No, if you I'm need good. To check Keep going. So my favorite quote about the music industry is, is, uh, when smart people do enough stupid things, they might as well be stupid people. There you go. And so I wonder how, obviously, you know these guys, and, and you're one of them, that, you know, built an industry that that touched the world, that changed the world. Um, and so how do you go from being that smart, to being not you personally, dumb. but, you know, to, to making those kind of mistakes? The same thing that led us all to the business in in the first place is the thing that blinded us when we had a when the call to action came mm-hmm. we we all got in the business cuz we had a love affair with music but most of the, most of the most of the people who succeeded and went pretty far in the business were people who were very very passionate about the about sure. music sure mm-hmm. as music there were guys who came in because they wanted to make money, they wanted an expense account, they wanted to screw around, whatever it was. But that was a... Yeah. Later. Yeah. The, 
the the, the real sure. the real stuff was people came in because of passion. When when this when the technology came, it was almost as if they were paralyzed in not not even fear, but paralyzed is it's like how could this how could our sanctity be invaded? Mm. You know, there was a sense of that. There was yeah. a sense of wait a minute, this is rarefied air we're dealing. We're dealing with artists yeah. and art, and this isn't a this is this stuff is crass. This is the lowest case denominator. I mean, what are they? This doesn't apply to us. That was the mentality, you yeah. know. And um, but people, especially in America, you know, and and in the Western countries, people want what they want, and they want as much as they can get for as little as they have to pay for it. Mm -hmm. It's just what it is. Mm -hmm. It's the Walmart, you know, mm -hmm. the big a, a big indicator for us <coughs> was when you know our music was not always sold in the big boxes. Mm -hmm. You, you sure. Know, it was sold in record theater, and it was sold in, yeah. you know. Is it me, or does it feel like the music industry is always fighting somebody? <laughs> like, yeah. Look, you, I'm going to tell you something. The music industry gets a bad rap. It, everything I'm telling you yeah, is heard, the way I feel. I've but uh, but the flip like... side of it is the music industry gets a bad rap. I'm going to tell you why they get a bad rap. Mm -hmm. It is a very, very tough business to succeed in because if you sign 10 artists a year, mm -hmm. The statistics are that only two and a half of them end up in black ink and seven and a half of them end up in red ink. And of the two and a half, only one of them is going to like pay for the other nine. Wow. So it's a very, very um, risky business. It's a high stakes business. You can go two or three years without having a hit. You can put a company out of business. Right. Yeah, it's very, very high stakes. Do, does it feel like you could? there could just be better decisions made on the business side? <laughs> Well, that's that's the rub, art versus commerce. Because mm -hmm. when you say there could be better decisions made, what you're really thinking, and we don't have time to get for you or thought to go all the way, but I'll help you get there. Mm -hmm. What you're ultimately going to be thinking is, why don't you guys have more hits? That's <laughs> sure. what you're ultimately thinking. Mm -hmm. But but hits are determined by consumers. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you never know what's going to work. You never know what's going to work. Mm -hmm. Something could be doing... Yeah. You know, you just don't know. You think mm -hmm. it's the greatest thing in the world, and nobody cares. Right. You know, we signed Nora Jones as oh, a as a jazz artist, and you know that first record sold fifteen million records. Yeah. Not in your wildest dream could you imagine right. that. Not yeah. in your wildest dream. Right. Yeah. You know, it just wasn't even in the book. So, so it. Right. We I went to a meeting when when the biggest corporate catastrophe in history was AOL and Time Warner. And I went to a, a meeting of CEOs, Warner, Time Warner CEOs. And I sat in a room with Bob Pittman, who's one of my oldest friends, who I met when I was 20 years old as a program director in Chicago, WLS. And uh, now he's, you know, king of the world. And he does this deal. And he brings in a guy who's the CEO, CFO. And uh, the guy stands up in front of the music group and he goes, you know, we figured out what the problem is with the music division. You guys just need to have more hits. <laughs> and I was sitting next to Ahmed Erdogan. Yeah. And he said, you are a genius. <laughs> Come on, Phil, let's go. <laughs> and then we get up and walk out of the meeting. Bob's like, no, no, don't no, leave. Yeah. You know, it was yeah. like, he, what, sure. uh, well, of course that's the answer, have more right. hits. 
Of yeah. course that's the answer. Right. The other answer is spend less money having hits. Right. The other answer is when you have three big hits, don't spend money on the fourth <laughs> one because you never know when it's going to, you know. Right. Yeah. It's obvious in retrospect, but when you're signing artists, you know, well, you, you know, know you don't know. I, I get it, though. It, strike, it struck me. So I grew up in the music business, and then I started working with brands, you know, around 30 years old. And, and you know, we were working with a big <coughs> car company mm -hmm. when I learned this statistic about 75, maybe it was even higher that I read about uh, you know, what percentage of records lose money. And I just thought, you know, what if the car business operated that way? What if any business operated any that business, way? Any business, right? And Be how no would business. you? There's no business, right? And um, and I think you know another. We're going to challenge some of these stories that the technology infiltration of music is telling us, right? But another one is that companies now, music companies, can research their way out of that, right? And there's all this hype about the data-driven record label, but it it's still. You can't underestimate the value of a song that makes you cry mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or makes you tap your foot right. or that you're subliminally singing to that you don't even know you like the song. Mm -hmm. yeah. you, you Which doesn't really happen with toothpaste, it. does it? Or toilet paper <laughs> <Right>. or diapers <laughs> or perfume. Right. Yeah. It's, just, it's, a, it's an anomaly. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Crazy. So uh, here's what I want to talk about. You were at you were at A&M. It was an indie. Right. He went to Island was in India at the time, before they got sold, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you were at Arista as an indie, I believe, and then Virgin as a startup. And then you go, you make the move to Warner's, and then Capital EMI was uh, majors. Right. What What did you need to change? What changed for you in terms of how you operate in those different Why environments? Why I moved? No, no. Like, how do you... How do you How do you make the transition? How do you make the transition from, indie? from an indie to a major well, it, label guy? Well, let me tell you, it's not that tough. I'll tell you why. There's a reason from in my particular journey. I'll tell you why it was not that that tough. When I went from A&M to Island and then Island to Arista, they were all about the same size company. Yeah. And um, at that time, how big is that? Um, you know, 30 releases a year, 25 releases a year. Yeah. How, big, know, how many people does it take to run a label that size? 100 people, 200 people, something yeah. like that. Not yeah. a couple hundred people. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, they all had their share of big a big artists. You know, A&M had the Super Tramps, and 38 Special was having hits, and sure. Sticks was having big hits, and Carol King had a huge record. Yeah. We get to um, Island, and we're busting up. You know, Robert Palmer had a couple number one records with, and then yeah. U2, and... We got to Arista, and that's right when Clive signed Whitney Houston. We used to go to New Jersey and sit in Wendy's and have hamburgers with Whitney Houston, this girl that he just signed. And yeah. Were you there? Was, was Bob Marley still alive when you were at Island? He had just died. Okay. They had just put out Legends. Oh, that, wow. that beautiful record. So, um, so they were all about the same thing. When Branson showed up, his idea was, uh, you know, look, we're going to go start this company in America, and we want you to be part of it. Mm -hmm. And I said... Well, I never, you know, I, I don't know anything about starting a business, you know. And he said, "No, that's all right. I do." Yeah. I said, "Okay." We talked for like three hours, and he said, "You know, you're gonna move to California." I said, "No, no, no I'm not. I'm not moving to California." <laughs> From New York. I'm not moving to California. <laughs> and <laughs> at the time, sorry to interrupt, but you know, Branson now is a, is 
everybody in America knows, everybody in the world knows who Richard Branson is. Right. At the well, time. he was a celebrity. He wasn't a celebrity then. I knew who he was because Virgin was right. an absolute contender in the in music the, In the UK. Mm. Right, but I only yeah. knew him as a record guy. Right. You know? Sure. I knew of him. I never met the guy before he showed up and, you know. So anyway, um, so going to Virgin was an easy transition coming out of those companies because the industry needed a change and... He was willing to take a shot with our team, the team that he put in place as the initial team, the inaugural team. And um, and we did very well out of the box. And, um, you know, candidly, the company was a midsize independent that had a lot of hits. Yeah. And so it was not that different from an A&M or sure. a, mm-hmm. an island. You know, be, it ultimately became bigger. Right. But rewind to what we were talking about an hour ago. I said there were two schools. Mm-hmm. And the school that I went to was the A&M school of Jerry Moss and the Island School of Chris Blackwell, and now the Branson School. And these guys were all, in their own right, entrepreneurial. Yeah. Very, very entrepreneurial. So I had been trained, don't forget, by these guys, by Branson and Chris Blackwell and Jerry Moss, to think entrepreneurially. It was just the way I was trained to think about things and look at the world. So but but all those companies, ironically, especially A and M, was modeled after Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. They were when when A and M was built and when we built Virgin, we modeled it after Warner Brothers because our view was everything had to run around the artist. So I always thought it would be fun to run one of the big majors. But I had already decided in my head that of all the majors at that time, which would have been Columbia, Polygram, MCA, Universal, you know, Mm -hmm. I had already decided myself emotionally, the only one I could ever run would be Warner Brothers because that was the only one that, Mm. that's what I was trained to do. I wasn't trained to run Columbia. I would need a sledgehammer to run Columbia. That's not what I do. Or a machine gun. That's why I hired Donnie, you know, but, but the, so, but I figured it would never come up and I'd say it virgin forever. Mm-hmm. And then in 1997, it came up out of the blue. You know, uh, Quincy yeah. Jones called me up and he said, I need your help. <laughs> I need you to go over and I need you to come help us with Warner Brothers. We got a mess. I need you to help clean it up. And I said, uh, okay, what do you want me to do? He said, I want you to be the president. I said, the president of Warner Brothers Records? <laughs> what are you, on crack? <laughs> he said, no, no, I think that's what you should do. And I said, yeah, okay, great. I, I think I should play for the Lakers also. Right. Now what? Uh-huh. Right. You know, so. What was that like? Running, playing for the Lakers. Well, <laughs> it was just, a lot of fun. No, just walking into Warner after you know they had like that you know rough upheaval. Yeah, they just had a rough time, and then you came in to like save the day. What was that? Well, I, I didn't really. I didn't think I saved anything. I just thought that I you know I I had a particular style of management, mm-hmm. and I and I was an organization guy, and I knew that I knew that what I was coming into at Warner Brothers was that people had been there for a very long time. They were older, and they'd been around too long, and they were trying to. They were just old and tired and needed to. Yeah. Yeah, they just needed a fresh look. Yeah. And that's and that's just what happened, and mm-hmm. it was great. Yeah. So, what are some of the lessons that you got from from those guys coming up? You always delegate. Um, you have to you have to learn how to delegate because you need to. You should never have more than like a half dozen direct reports in a big company. Now, those are all multi billion dollar businesses. Yeah. And if you're trying to if you're trying to manage more than six people you're not doing a good job mm-hmm. and um, you also need to have time to put up the periscope and steer the company so that's a big piece of the puzzle the other piece of the puzzle was that 
um, I spent as much time with the kids in the mailroom as I did with the mm-hmm. senior people because mm-hmm. I was trying to grow kids from the inside. Who, who taught you that? Uh, Branson, more than anybody. Because Branson is, you know, when we met Branson, he had already at that time in 1986 when we started Virgin, he already had 100 companies at that point. Wow. And, he, and, and I remember sitting at dinner with him the first time and I said, how do you find a hundred qualified people to run a hundred companies? He says, I don't. <laughs> he says, I find people yeah. that I like and I look them in the eye and when I get up from my meeting, I either like them or I don't like them. I either trust them or I don't trust them. If I like them, I trust them. I give them a shot. And the worst case scenario is that I make a mistake. I was like, wow, that's kind of scary. Yeah. But pretty freaking smart. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, does it feel like there's a, just this overwhelming fear of mistakes I think there is in everything mm-hmm. I think people are so I, sadly I think that is the case but for the, the motive I think is bad because I think people are so consumed with me mm-hmm. everybody's in the me business yeah. mm-hmm. you know and now more than ever you know if I see my kids take one more selfie I'm going <laughs> to break their wrist you know but it's like it's like ridiculous yeah. yeah but it's like you're so consumed with your own nonsense it's like God forbid you do something wrong. Who cares if you do something wrong? Right. You know, who cares? Yeah. So you, you learn from it and you do it better next time. That's the end of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Next. Fantastic. I think that's, I mean, I think it's that simple, but <laughs> you can't tell people that. You know? Yeah. I think next week we'll tape the show from Cassie's new Casper mattress. We'll all lay on the bed and do our interview from there and see who falls asleep first. You can go to Casper.com and get your own mattress. Use the code RADIO and save $50 off the purchase of a new mattress. You can also get a pillow, some sheets. Who knows what else they might have there for you. Go to Casper.com, type in RADIO as a promo code, and you save 50 bucks. Terms and conditions apply. So I want to talk about Guevara because I know that's, that's what you're doing now. Uh, new, you know, streaming music service. Um, I guess my first question is, how do you take all this stuff that we're talking about, all these things you've learned, and how does that apply in this environment? Well, it doesn't naturally apply. Yeah. So, I'm kind of a guy with a shoehorn trying to make it apply. Okay. Because there's really not a lot of room for the artist in the tech world so I w- when I left the last time I worked in one of the big companies was at EMI mm-hmm. I left there in 2007 and um, and I was approached by a few companies to do different things when I came out you know um, <coughs> Yahoo at that time was looking to do a music thing and YouTube was talking about coming in to run t- and, and you know in both cases I said well how are you gonna how are you gonna pay how are you gonna pay the artists oh we're not gonna pay the artists <laughs> I said, well, you know what? Then you need to you need to talk to somebody else. Yeah. Because um, you know, I just spent thirty years growing artists. Right. Yeah. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna poop on them. Mm-hmm. So then, um, about a couple of years later, I met uh, Klaus Holberg, who founded Guevara, and he said, I think you're, I think you're the guy that we should be talking to. I said, why do you think that? And he said, well, because we've heard you, you know. I hear that you kind of you you want to stand behind that, and you've turned down some offers 
based on the fact they weren't paying. Well, we're going to pay the artists. We're going to have music deals. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, how are you going to do that? And he said, well, where the, the where there's the fan and the consumer, the thing that used to connect those two things used to be called the record industry. Now, that's crumbled. So everybody's been doing this dance to figure out how to connect those two con- communities, you know. We think the guy that can be the pipe between those two is the brand community. And he proceeded to tell me about how they wanted to use their technology to create brand pages and brand relationships with the artist and the consumer in um, like relationships that would serve both communities. And it made mm-hmm. a lot of sense to me, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so I got on board with that. You know, I knew I had to learn. I was always an artist guy. I was always a marketing guy. I was always a branding guy. So I was never a tech guy. I'm still not a tech guy. I didn't like it then. I like yeah, it two let. phones. That's something. Yeah, I hate them both equally. <laughs> one's an AT&T phone. One's a Verizon phone. They both suck. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, I didn't have to like it, but I did have to understand it. Yeah. yeah. So before Guevara, <clears throat> what I did was I spent a year at Shazam. And Shazam, when I got there, was basically a company that was, you know, it was the app that would, you know, do its trick. The mm-hmm. song yeah. came on, you hit the button. Where's your Shazam? And here's the song, you <laughs> yeah. know. The, the song is the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and yeah. it's called blah, blah, and blah. And it. Yeah. came out in 1990. Okay. That, that, that was the trick. Yeah. And I said to them, and, and I said, well, how many people you got using this thing? And they said, this was in 2010 or 11. They said, oh, we had... Very, very nonchalant. We had um, 2.3 billion hits mm-hmm. last year. And I was like, B? That'd <laughs> yeah. be like McDonald's, billion. Yeah. Like, so that would make you the biggest music app in the world. Right. And they said, well, yeah. You know, and arguably they're considered now one of the 10 top, best, top 10 best apps. Yeah. And I said, it would, it would seem to me that if you have that fire hose of music fans coming through this thing, it would seem to me that you would try and hold some of them for more than the four seconds it takes to do this. Right. To hit the to hit the button. Yeah. Okay. Right. So and you know, they said, Yeah, we thought about that, but you know, it works and everybody's happy and blah blah. You yeah. know. So I proceeded to give them three or four different initiatives, you know, that when I was there, um, they couldn't get to them. But happily, a couple of years later, I started seeing some things show up, which were very recognizable, which I was thrilled. Mm-hmm. Couldn't be more proud or more thrilled that they were using some of the things that we spoke about. So, nice. Yeah. So that that was the beginning of it. And then Guevara came along and had been on their board for years. And the thing that's exciting about Guevara is that, you know, they, they put a big stake in the ground in Australia, which is great. And then we pushed our way into Indonesia with a relationship with Lenovo. And that's going very well. And, you know, for years we've talked about coming into America. And I've kind of, I've really advised, you know, that maybe coming into America wasn't the best thing to do at the time (coughs) in the last couple of years. Because unlike Australia where there were a couple of music players and unlike Indonesia where there were a couple of players, you know, America had 20 players. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, and some pretty big ones, and some big ones. And I said, you know, what's going to happen is you're going to come into America. These guys are spending 150, 200 million dollars a year just in advertising. Yeah. yeah. So you're going to come to America. You're going to spend a huge amount of money for what? Yeah. To be number what? Just to number make, ten? Like, not even number fifty. You know, yeah. like mm-hmm. to what? To say we're in America? So yeah. 
you know, I've always um, been a proponent of, <coughs> excuse me, if you can't do something different or better, don't do it. As simple as that. Yeah. If you can't do it better and you can't do it different, just don't. So my advice was wait on America until there's a reason to come into America. Go out and there's so many markets in the world. Mm -hmm. So we do Australia, Indonesia, India now is lit up big time. Nice. Moving into Russia, you know. Just those four markets alone, if you just look at Australia, Indonesia, India, and, you know, Huge. you're talking about 1.6 or 1.8 million, a billion people. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, that's a big audience to tap into. Yeah. yeah. Huge brands. So you can make a business doing that. Make, it, make that business. And then when you show up in America, at least you have a couple of billion people in play. Sure. And you've got global brands mm -hmm. attached to you. And that's just, you're not yeah. showing up, you know, like a... Like you're, you know, the Avon lady. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, so why do you think Guevara has a shot now? Because now I think that um, it could be the time to do something different and better. I think, I think the world doesn't need twenty music players. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's Pepsi and there's Coke. Yeah. Yeah. We don't need twenty different people. I agree. Telling us how to stream music. Yeah. So there's going to be, I think, a big consolidation. Yeah. I don't know yeah, if we'll go from to 20 to 2, but I could I could certainly imagine us going from 20 to 6 mm -hmm. or 5, whatever it is, okay? Yeah. And but at the end of the day, everybody who are the the big players basically just do basic services. You know, there's nothing sexy or exciting or different about a lot of these big companies mm -hmm. going unnamed, right. you know? I mean, it's just they're just players. Right. Yeah. So, with Gavera, what we've tried to do is attach different featured programming things like House of Guevara or Fradio and these brand pages have been very, very successful. And I think you might have seen uh, the Harley Davidson thing uh -huh. in India when yeah. we were all together. You know, there are, there are good examples like that around the world of things that are separating Guevara out of the pack and, and giving better and different engagement for music fans. And, and that's really what we've been harping on and that's, that's kind of the story we're telling. Mm-hmm. And we want to keep telling because mm -hmm. that's how we think we get separated. And while everybody else is going to go and consolidate, mm -hmm. what I'm hoping is that we get to cultivate right. and, and nurture a future. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Fradio is really interesting. I did check that out. That's interesting. Right. And so anybody can kind of essentially create your own radio yeah. station where... With your own community of friends. Right. Yeah. That it's is neat. really cool. Yeah. Um, and then the, the other thing I think that stands out to me as different is really the brand involved. And, and I know you've talked about that a bunch um, in terms of the role that brands, the opportunity that brands have to play in this music fan relationship. Um, where have you seen that, you know, work the best? What do you think is, you know, what do you hold up? Um, not that many years ago, artists were afraid of the brands. <coughs> Excuse me. Because nothing was cool. Nothing, yeah. was, right. nothing was cool enough. Sure. Right. And then, um, you know, we did things in the 90s, even as early as the 90s, where by choice, artists would say, you know, you know, there was this band, there was this artist that had a record by uh, a producer, it was called Enigma. Mm -hmm. Sade, remember yeah. that?
that song was dead as a doornail. I was working on that record for months. Couldn't get the first base. They put in a haagen commercial in Germany, and the, the thing exploded wow. in, in Europe. Yeah. Then I was able to move the record over here, and I couldn't get it all the way in, but I got it to mid-chart. And then when I got it to the mid-chart, we put it into a into a Playboy channel, um, like bumper breaks, you know? Record went crazy. So the brand worked. Okay, so that's a very small example. Yeah. Move forward to like 1996. There was a big Tina Turner tour. And we needed a sponsor for the tour. We went out and made a deal with um, Legs. Because Tina Turner was always famous for her yeah. legs, even though sure. she became an older artist. Mm-hmm. You know? And you may remember a great... Legs of the pantyhose. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And there was, there was a great commercial they made of her strutting across the stage, but mm-hmm. they was shot her from the waist down with mm-hmm. just her legs. You know, cool. And it looked like the legs of a 20-year-old woman. And you know, at that point, Tina was already in her 60s. Wow. And it was like, you know, it was a, that was a big story. And that was yeah. a huge campaign. And it blew the doors off Tina's record and mm-hmm. legs, you know. And and then all of a sudden, you know, and I, at that point, I was um, still at, at Virgin. But, you know, we had, um, well, at that point, everybody said, well, where's my commercial? Yeah. You know, it went from, right. yeah, sure. it went from like, on Monday, yeah. <clears throat> I don't want to be in business. You know, I don't want to be K-Tel. Right. I'm, I'm too cool. I'm, you know, I'm the Verve. Yeah. I can't be K-Tel. Yeah. And then, like, by Friday, it was like, where's my commercial? Yeah. Okay. Because somebody got $10 million in of their course. pocket. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and people have to see it work. And then yeah. they get on later. I get it. Um, what do you... Uh, where are the ways... Where are the places that that gets screwed up? And specifically, you know, what would you... What do you want the brands to know? It gets screwed up less today. Mm-hmm. Because there's a necessity where there used to be a desire only. Right. You know, if you could convince the brand that it would work yeah. for mm-hmm. the artist <clears throat> and for them to be involved with the artist, and if you could convince the artist, hey, these guys, it, you know, it's kind of a cool thing you share an audience with. There, then it was just like you had to create the love fest. Mm-hmm. You know, it was out of creating desire. Mm-hmm. Today there's a necessity. Yeah. Because the necessity is that in a real in, a, in an alignment that works, you could sell three, four, or five times more music than you otherwise would without the brand relationship. Mm-hmm. Sure. And the brand recognized the value of the cachet of the artist. So um, th- there's not a lot of room for it to get screwed up anymore because this has become a pretty well-refined thing, mm-hmm. as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. You know, If there is a place to get screwed up is where somebody's ego overtakes their brain mm-hmm. and they decide, you know, well, I'm entitled to this kind of this or that. and Yeah, but that's like anything else. It's just, sure. not, mm-hmm. just nonsense. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I've heard you talk uh, publicly about kind of lifestyle brands, right? And and so I'm wondering, is this is this kind of does this make sense for every brand? No, no, it doesn't make sense. Every, look, every brand can use music, but just using music is it's a one-off opportunity. Right. The place where you have a real relationship. Do you remember? Um, do you remember when Sting was in the back of a Jaguar by any chance, no. riding through the countryside? No. Mm-hmm. There was a there was a Sting record that we that um, I wasn't involved in. It, but I worked with Sting and the Police, obviously mm-hmm. for years at A and M. But then, fast forward, I was already at Virgin. But there was a song they couldn't get. It was after Sting, after the Police broke up. Sting had a big record that was kind of mid charting. They couldn't get the record all the way in. They were trying to find a spot to put it in, and a Jaguar opportunity came up. And they weren't sure if they should do it. So all of a sudden, here's Sting riding around the back seat of a Jaguar, driving through the Italian countryside. Beautiful commercial, and he's singing this song. Blew the record up, mm-hmm. 
completely blew the record up. And the record ended up being a big record, and everybody was happy, and Jaguar was happy because they had Sting in the back seat, and <laughs> everybody lived happily ever after. But basically, after the six or eight weeks of the campaign, it was done. It's over. There's no relationship, you yeah. know? So what, what's better is you take a guy like, uh, you know, a Ben Harper or Jack Johnson, and you align them with companies like Quicksilver or Hurley or mm-hmm. Billabong. Okay, you know that they share the same yeah. or the same, consu- the same mm-hmm. customers, mm-hmm. right? Same demographics, same psychographics. It's like, okay, this is a match that can go on. This is a relationship that can go for a while. It goes beyond a song or an album. It can go over three or four cycles, and really you can integrate the brand and the artist into each other's because you're growing a loyalty in that fan. That's the difference. Yeah. One's an op- one's opportunistic and one is sure. more yeah. loyal. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... What hasn't been done, or where would you like to see that marriage of brands and music go? Well, I'm going to give you an answer that's, it's a little bit of a, I don't mean it to sound like a tricky answer, but it's a little bit of a tricky answer because you get the next thing, when I tell you what I want to see happen, then you're going to say, oh, good, how's that going to happen? And I don't <laughs> know the answer yet. Okay. Fair but what enough. I'd love to see happen, okay, now that I'm, now that I'm not running the big companies anymore, I work with artists yeah. who need my help. And I'm happy to work with people like Avera and you know anybody who's putting music out. But for me, my agenda, my personal agenda, with, ev- with everything I do right now, is to reestablish the value of music. That is my goal. Mm. That music has value. Mm-hmm. It's not free. It's not disposable. Um, it's, it does have value and it is important. Mm-hmm. So with whatever I am doing whether it's in the Guevara world or the artists I currently work with or whatever it is. For me, it's about how do I reinstill the value of this artist and this song for the consumer. So, big shot, how are you going to do that? I don't have a clue. Okay. I'm still working on that. Mm-hmm. I get it. But, but if you're asking me where I'd like to see these relationships go, where I'd mm-hmm. like to see these relationships go, is that the brand helps me tell their consumer that music has value mm-hmm. yeah no i get it and i and i appreciate that that's not that simple to create yeah. not that simple um, but you know i mean especially we, now because you know now we're fa- now i'm fighting a generation <coughs> of kids who think music is free right right yeah which no, is unless you're sure getting something so exclusive right. but yeah no yeah, i so totally get it and, and you know i um you know, I helped build a branded record label for Scion, mm-hmm. um, and we've pitched a bunch of, you know, we've we've argued in a lot of boardrooms that brands need to become the new labels, right? I'm and all have about an opportunity that. to to just replace at least pieces of what those labels do now, and they have, um, but, you know. There but, is an absolute opportunity there. I don't mean to cut you off, but I will tell you that. Everybody, every brand that I ever had that conversation with loves the idea until we have one conversation. I tell them, because I, I feel very strongly about being very transparent about mm-hmm. spending somebody else's money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I say, I want you to know that in the big businesses that we ran, this is the ratio. Yes. Mm-hmm. And these were guys that were doing this their whole lives <clears throat> and knew how to do it. Yeah. And they were only hitting right. two, out of, two out of ten. Well, yes, although, you know, I mean... I talk about this stuff all day with you. I, I love it. But um, but let's say, you know, that is as a business that needs to generate a profit on its own from the sale of music. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, a big consumer brand maybe doesn't need to have that type of 
financial relationship to the right. music that they could put out. They can monetize that in other ways through sales mm-hmm. of their products. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, but I think th- I bring it up because I think it, it absolutely speaks to the point of, for the most part, what I've seen is brands trying to extract the value out of music. Right, right. To say, here's a relationship between artist and fan that exists. Let's go get some of that. As opposed to... Like Pepsi with Beyonce. Absolutely. Right? We want we want to yeah, we want to buy a piece of that cool right. and have it rub on us. As well, opposed go, to... Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. We want to help enrich the experience that cons- our consumers can have related to music. And to your point, like we want to... We want to make that valuable and add to so that. So you're you're coming from my position, which I appreciate, that yeah. that there is value in the music in its own right. Right. Absolutely. And and as you probably know, you know, you have to convince the brand that they don't want to have an opportunity. They just want the biggest. Right. They want the opportunistic relationship because you know what they want. They want the biggest name. Yes. With the biggest mm-hmm. bang for the least they have to pay, get me them. Right. Yeah. That's what they. Yeah. You know, I'm sure you've sat in that meeting. Yeah. You right. know, so and and, it and there's, there's the a time biggest for that, brand right? doesn't mean the right brand. I mean, the Absolutely. biggest artist doesn't mean the right artist. Right. You know. That's the thing. I think there's a time for that when that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But there's also a lot of other scenarios where that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, I always say that you know people have this burning need to give someone money who doesn't need the money. Hey, you know, it can cut both ways. You yeah. know, before Beyonce, yeah. they had Nicki Minaj, which right. was a train wreck. Yeah. Oh, boy. You know? Sure. Those guys at Pepsi were, like, trying to slit their wrists every time that commercial came on, and they're like, oh, my God, what do we do? I'm sure. So they thought the, they thought the cure was to go to Beyonce. Right. And she ran out of gas once they paid her 75 million bucks. It was like. Jesus. Unbelievable. So, yeah. yeah so it's, it's crazy. It's, it's a very tough business to, it's a tough business, you know? Yeah. Well, mm. we're almost out of time. I have a couple last questions. Yes, please. Uh, do you remember the first record you ever bought? Yep. Roy Orbison, Crying. Nice. Very cool. I was all right for a while. I could smile for a while. But I saw you last night. You held my hand so tight as you stopped to say Uh, do you remember the last record you bought? Yes, but I can't remember the oh, name wow. of it. That's it was good, recent. Nice. It was, um, uh, it will come back to me. I, I bought it when it first came out. Oh, it was um, The Weeknd. Oh, nice. Yeah. He's Very cool. It's a great record. Um, I, I, this is not a fair question, but think of a favorite live show you've ever seen that's not a that's not a hard question okay uh it's a tie between two shows it was the last show i ever saw the police play at madison square garden the last show they played in their first iteration as a band Mm -hmm. in 1980 before they blew themselves up because the whole the only thing they ever talked about was being able to play madison square garden Mm. and um that was the last night they played together That's until cool. until the reunion tour, and it was ridiculous. I mm-hmm. bet. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the other one was the uh, the other one was Madison Square Garden U two after we broke Pride. 
Oh, cool! And to see to see the song that we spent a year getting up, up the chart, you yeah. know, like blow the roof off that place was that's big. cool. It was big. Yeah, it was a moment. That was my first, not my first concert ever, but the first ticket I bought for myself mm-hmm. was Joshua Tree at uh, Oakland Coliseum. Right. Yeah, Oakland Coliseum. Unbelievable. Amazing experience. Yeah. Well, Phil Q, thanks for being here, man. I appreciate it. And uh, make sure everybody signs up for Guevara. <laughs> and yeah. uh, come back Guevara anytime you want to talk. Player very, very soon. And yeah, in your coming to your town soon. <laughs> nice. Awesome. Thanks. Okay, thank thank you. you guys very much. Yeah, thank you. That was fun. That was Phil Q. If you're not smarter now than you were when this started, then there's something wrong with you. I guess you weren't listening. Hey, leave us a comment. On Twitter, at Rebel Radio Net, leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Rebel Radio. And don't forget to come back next week for more Rebel Radio.